Let us come now to our sermon for today. We are in Hebrews, as you know, so I'll ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. This amazing first chapter accomplishes two goals, two points that it wants to make, two major ends. First of all, it offers us an exordium, an introduction to the letter that proclaims really the theme of the letter. Those first four verses lay out what this letter is about, as we have said It has been often said, if you understand these first four verses, the rest of the letter really becomes secondary. I don't want to say unnecessary, because it's the Word of God, but you have the message in those first four verses. First of all, you have this exordium, which proclaims that Christ is glorious, that He is greater than the prophets. He is this great and perfect priest and king, the prophet of God, who's come in these final days to proclaim to us and to show us God. And there are so many things said there. We've looked at them. In fact, I think we had seven sermons in those first four verses. So much is said there. The second point that this first chapter is pointing us to is that Christ is greater than the angels. Now, it's that last verse of the exordium that really makes the transition there, isn't it? If you look at that last verse of those initial four, It says that after Christ had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, what? Four. Verse four. Having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You see the argument there. And we've tried to say from week to week as we've gone through this that one of the key points that's being made there is not the danger of angelic worship. There certainly is a danger to mankind of worshiping anything other than God, idolatry. But that isn't probably the concern here because it's paralleled in this chiastic structure with the prophets in verse 1. Just as Christ is greater than the prophets of old who came and brought part of the message at various times and in various ways, speaking on behalf of God to the people of God, so in these final days God has spoken to us fully and finally by not a servant, but by His Son. The one through whom He made all things, the one He appointed heir of all things, the one who is the brightness of His glory and the express image of His substance. This is the one who has come in these last days to speak to us. And He's spoken fully and finally in Christ Jesus. God has. So again, parallel to that is this verse 4, that Christ has become so much better than the angels as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Just as Christ is greater than the prophets... As a prophet, he is greater than the angels as a mediator. And that is going to be the argument here as we look at Hebrews. So again, as we continue forward, we saw many things. In what way is he greater than the angels? Well, he's obtained a more excellent name. That's the name of Son. And we spoke about that. It gets complicated. What is already true in eternity becomes true in the Incarnation. As Christ becomes, if you will, this perfect servant, this perfect Son of God. But then if you continue forward, he asks some pretty obvious questions like this. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. That is said nowhere to any angel. Therefore we know that it's making distinction here. The son is greater than the angels. Again, it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is the Davidic promise, the covenant with David. It's being applied here to Christ, of course, as it should be. 
And again, he says, to which angel was it ever said that I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? The answer is to no angel. But again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, what does he say? Let all the angels of God worship him. So in the economy of God, in the economy that he has given to the angels, it is their job to worship Christ. Where, in all the scriptures, does it say that Christ is to worship angels? Nowhere. Nowhere. And so you know again, here is another evidence. The author is giving us that Christ is greater than the angels. And then he says, and of the angels. Now he's speaking now specifically angels. He says, who, meaning God, makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Again, this tells us two things. First of all, angels are created. And second of all, they are ministers. They are servants. Now we know that Christ came into this world in the incarnation as a servant. But he is eternally king of glory. So again, you see the difference that's being stated here. Of the angels, it is said this. But it's going to say something quite different of the Son. So as we come back to our text for today, we want to recognize that today we're going to see two Old Testament quotations covering five verses. Now, uh, that is quite different from the approach we've taken thus far. I think we've had ten sermons covering seven verses And now we're going to have one sermon covering five verses. It's not we're trying to speed things up, but we've laid the groundwork for this. So now we can begin to pick up a little bit of speed. But it's important what's said here, and so we want to look at it carefully. So we're going to see some quotations today that are important. They're going to show show us an astounding or a wondrous Christology. Now that name is simply the part of theology that studies Christ, His person, and His work. And so this is going to tell us much about Christ. All right, so let's read the text one more time. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Amen. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at two points. First of all, a son of promise. And second of all, a psalm of attributes. And if we see those two points, I think we'll see what the author is trying to tell us of this wondrous Christology. So beginning first with this idea of the son of promise, I want to ask you as we begin to walk through these verses to notice how they begin. Look at verse 8. But to the Son, he says. Now, we know that but that is used there is a word of contrast, isn't it? The author is contrasting something that he's just said against what he's about to say. Well, what has he just said? Well, we looked at it. He said, first of all, that the word is clear. God says, let all the angels of God worship Him. So he said something of the angels worshiping Christ. And of the angels, he says, 
who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So again, these created beings that are to serve God. That's what he's just said. But now he says, but to the Son, he says. That's a word of contrast. Well, what does he say to the Son? Well, he turns to a very strange place, Psalm 45. If you have your Bible handy, and you should, please turn to Psalm 45. This is a very unusual psalm. It's a unique psalm. Psalm 45 is a royal wedding psalm. There's no other psalm like it. It's unique among the psalms. It was a psalm that apparently was uh, written to be read at the weddings of the kings of Judah, the sons of David, a psalm that is a song of love. And what's interesting about it is this is where the author of Hebrews wants to turn to establish his Christology. Now, that isn't as confusing to us when we think about the church as the bride of Christ and all the pictures we have in the New Testament, but it might be confusing to the reader, the initial reader of Hebrews. But think about this psalm because as the author of Hebrews is applying this, he would have us turn back and think about this psalm. And this psalm is a psalm that has four strophes or parts, sections, an introduction, and then a, a word on the king, and then a word on the bride, and then a conclusion. And so it begins with this introduction. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer, or a skillful writer. His tongue is ready to compose great words. And then what does he say of this king? You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride, prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, I would encourage you to continue reading that psalm this afternoon. Take some time working through it. You can see uh, the beauty of that psalm. But for the purposes that we're going to look at, that's the section that the author of Hebrews is referring to. And he wants us to think about what is said of this king. As you're reading this as a Hebrew Christian or uh, even as a, a Jew, you would recognize this psalm is this royal wedding psalm, and you would recognize it's a song written about the sons of David. Perhaps even David himself. We don't know the date this was written. Perhaps even this is written for David. But regardless, we would recognize how these things are speaking of the Davidic, Davidic king. Now what is said here? It says things that could be said of David. The second verse says that God has blessed you forever. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, there is a blessing of God forever upon His Davidic covenant. We looked at it several weeks ago, didn't we, as we turned to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You remember in verse 16 it says, "...in your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever." This is the blessing of the covenant. That God is going to establish a house for David. David wanted to build God a house. God said, no, David, it's not for you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. 
a line, a lineage, son, who will forever rule and reign the Davidic covenant. Psalm 89, 3 and 4 repeats this blessing, the covenantal nature of this promise made to David. It says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. In fact, Psalm 45, 6, which is what our author quotes, reiterates this idea, doesn't it? By saying that your throne is forever and ever. The very thing we just read in Samuel's writings and in the Psalms, it says it here again in this Psalm. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Will reign forever. This this seed will reign forever. Your, Your throne, David, will be established forevermore without end. But if we continue to other themes that are in this psalm, verses 4, 6, and 7 speak of righteousness. Now David was to be a righteous king. Uh, All the kings uh, ruling under God's favor were to be righteous. That means to do what? To emphasize that which is right and just and proper. To battle against that which is not. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that is still the job of government today to promote that which is good, to reward that which is good, to punish evildoers. That is the role of government even today. And so again, you see it here. There is a call for this king to be a king of righteousness. But David struggled, obviously, because he's a human being, marred by sin as we all are, a fallen human being. He was a man, certainly after the Lord's own heart, but he struggled Because we all struggle as men fallen into sin. Of course, he's also the one who is anointed. You'll see that in these texts as well. God has anointed you. Can that be said of David? Well, yes, of course, all kings were anointed. 2 Samuel shows us that. But even in 1 Samuel, you see this amazing thing where Samuel goes and finds David. He goes to the household of Jesse. He says, bring out your sons. God has shown me that one of them is to be king. Jesse brings them out. Samuel's confused. It isn't any of these. You can imagine confusion. Is this all your sons? Well, no. There's another. I didn't bring him to you because it can't be him. He's small. He's unimpressive. He's ruddy-complected, the text says. He's nothing that looks like a leader. Now, it's amazing, isn't it, that Jesse is thinking in the exact same way Israel thought when they selected Saul. Right? Saul was picked, why? Because he had natural leadership ability, that he was a man most holy amongst men or something like that? No. He was picked, the text says, because he was a head taller than all the others of Israel. He was more impressive. They said, who do we want to rally behind on the battlefield? Give us that guy. Give us this impressive man of stature. It wasn't a great pick. Didn't turn out to be. David, the one that Even his own father thinks it cannot be this one. He's too small. He's not impressive. He's ruddy-complected. No one will want to follow him. Yet this is the man God raised up. It's amazing. In that Davidic covenant text that we read from a few weeks ago, David is reminded by God, I don't need you to establish me a house. I took you out of the fields as a lowly shepherd. I gave you a kingdom. Don't forget it. I'm the one Who raised you up, David? Well, there's the text that speaks of it. And yet, 
as he is selected from amongst his brothers and as Samuel recognizes this is the man. This is the one whom God has chosen. 1 Samuel 16, 13 tells us this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. He was anointed and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. Now, again, we think about this text. This can certainly apply to David. But there is a difficulty in this text. There is a difficulty you may have already noticed that scholars struggled with for years. The rabbis struggled with for years. As they read this text, they noticed it says in verse 6, speaking what would seem to be of David, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I'm going to ask you, how is that said of David? Now the, the rabbis... They tried to reinterpret this phrase. They tried to rework this phrase. They tried to speak of, well, David is God's representative and so on and so forth. Never a satisfactory answer. We don't struggle with it, do we? Primarily because we would understand the Davidic promise and who it points to ultimately, not David, not Solomon, not on down the line, but the promised seed from that line, Jesus, is the one that this text is speaking about. This word Elohim, God, in the Old Testament is applied to Jesus by the author of Hebrews. Now again, I would say that if you reinterpret this text through the lens the author of Hebrews is telling you that you should, then it all makes more sense. It all makes more sense. You see, the psalmist says, Your throne, O Christ, O Jesus, O God, is forever and ever. That's said of him. That's no problem for our theology because we recognize, as the author of Hebrews does, that this psalm is looking through David to the promised seed of David, who is Christ, the one who is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the inheritor of David's throne and all other thrones. That's what Psalm 2 tells us, right? We looked at that already. All the nations shall be given to you as inheritance. In fact, all things are yours. And so again, this is the one of whom it's being spoken. Well, what else does the text say? Christ is the one whose throne will last forever and ever. Amen. That's all we need to say. Amen. It will last forever and ever. That He is the one who is eternally blessed. Eternally blessed. He is the anointed one. Is that not even what the name Christ means? The Messiah? The anointed one of God? All other anointings are foreshadowings of that great anointing that Christ Himself had as the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And what about righteousness? Where David couldn't live up to the term, though he was a man after God's own heart. We want to recognize that about David. David was a man who loved the Lord and sought after the Lord, even if he had moral failings, as all human beings do. And yet at the same time, it can be said of Christ that He is perfectly righteous. There is no question that these uh, verses can apply to Christ perfectly because, again, He is the one who is perfectly righteous. He is the one that David trusted in. When David said, my righteousness is not enough, thank goodness there is one who takes my sin as far as the east is from the west. Blessed is the man whose sins are not imputed to him, David said. Well, how is that possible? Because David in some way recognized that he would stand in the righteousness of Christ. His sins put on Christ's account 
and, and of course, him standing then in Christ's righteousness. That's how his sins were not imputed to him. That's how he is blessed, because he stands in the one who is eternally blessed. Peter in his first epistle says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. Christ is perfectly righteous. Now that is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. This is spoken of the Son. What has been said of the angels cannot be said of Him. What is said of Him cannot be said of the angels. But to the Son, He says. He says this very thing. Now if you turn back to Hebrews again, you'll see that text laid out there as we just said. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Notice, even there, this is not a king who is righteous because he has to be. His throne is righteous. His kingdom is righteous. His scepter, meaning his power, it's all righteous because he is righteous. All that righteousness flows out of him because he himself is righteous. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Who is this spoken of? Well, we see that in the previous example, it's contrasted against God said to the angels, let all the angels of God worship him. And now, but to the Son, he, meaning God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God says to his only begotten Son, Christ, he calls him God. Now, my friends, this is going to be vitally important. We've been dealing with this theology throughout this letter, these early verses. It's incredibly important. It's essential in understanding this letter to understand that. This letter wants to leave no doubt in any reader or hearer's minds, Christ is God. He is God. And if you had any question about that, the author is going to go further in his next quotation. So let's move from this son of promise, this Davidic son of promise who came into the world, who is referred to as Elohim, this one whose uh, rule and reign will be forevermore. And we come to this second reference. Now the second reference is to Psalm 102. And I think I've got it marked in my other Bible. I ran out of marks. I said if I ever get another Bible rebound, got this one rebound after it fell apart on me, I'm going to have them put like 10 place marks in the Bible. I had four put in, and it's never enough. All right, we come to Psalm 102, and another interesting psalm. Another interesting psalm. I would ask you to look quickly at the, the title of the psalm. Now, my Bible says, The Lord's Eternal Love. Now, this is just a, a title put on by those that publish the Bible, but the inscription right after that, uh, is is trustworthy. A psalm of the afflicted. I wonder if your translation words it that way. A psalm of the afflicted. When he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Now I want you to listen to this psalm. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me, and the day that I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, 
so that I forget to eat my bread because of the sound of my own groaning. My bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and I'm like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away, my days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This will be written of the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner and to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and to pray in his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, O oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Amen. Now, as you come to that text, you'll notice that it's very much like most of the Psalms. In this regard, the Psalms are often set up in just this way. There is a, a heartbreak or a complaint or an a, a intercession, a, a need for help declared in the Word. And the author talks about the affliction that he faces and the trouble that he's in. And he cries out that he needs help. And then the psalm turns to the declaration of a confidence in the one in whom he can trust. Yes, I'm in this afflicted state. Yes, I'm in this time of trouble. Yes, I'm in this deep and dark valley. But I know the God who walks with me. I know the God in whom I trust. I know the one I put my trust in because he is my God you'll see this form over and over in the Psalms it's why we need those Psalms so often in the dark valleys of our own life we find comfort we read what David has written or one of the other psalmists has written and we say that's where I'm at I'm in that valley I'm in that moment of question I'm in that moment of difficulty stress trial temptation and I recognize I'm not the first person to walk through this valley and unless the Lord comes back in the next millisecond, I won't be the last to walk through that valley. And we can all take comfort in finding that others have been in that valley before us, including inspired authors who have given us these texts. And said, how do you make it through these valleys? By trusting in the Lord. By trusting in the Lord. So if you had read this psalm, 
as a, as a Jewish uh, person before Christ came into the world, if you were reading it even today, you would be reading this as a person who is afflicted, who is struggling. And where can they turn? Well, they will turn to the Lord. And that's how you would read it. But this author, inspired by God, says, this text is written of Jesus. This text is written of Jesus. Notice the form here. Verse 8, but to the Son, he says, so that is the contrast with what's come before, this verse in 8 and 9 is to the Son, verse 10, and also to the Son. Also to the Son. Now, we say, okay, what's the problem with that? Well, there really isn't a problem, but it's a glorious thing that's found here. Because as you look at this, you see this psalmist, this author speaking, if you will, of this troubled time, this difficulty that is being faced, and God responds back to whoever is being spoken of in this psalm, and the author here tells us he's speaking to Christ. Now you can take your time, sometime we will preach through this psalm, you can take your time walking through it, I think you should, and see can this be a psalm, a prayer of Christ under affliction, perhaps the Garden of Gethsemane. Regardless, the author of Hebrews tells us this response is to the Son. To the Son. Well, what is the response? Now, as you read the psalm, it's worded slightly different. He's quoting the Septuagint. I've made this point. This author is over and over quoting the Greek Old Testament. That is incredibly important theologically. He says, you, Lord, Lord. Now, we're comfortable with that word. But in the Septuagint, this word kyrios is used in place of a word that we would be familiar with. It's always used in place of Jehovah or Yahweh. If you've been following news recently, you know there's a lot of talk about Bible translations and changing this word uh, in the text to Yahweh. Uh, And and it's uh, an interesting thing to talk about. But here there's no question because the quotation is from the the Septuagint, which always means Yahweh or Jehovah when Lord, Kyrios, is used in this way. So he says, you, Jehovah, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Now, no Jew would have any problem with that. But the author of Hebrews is saying, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son calling the Son Jehovah or Yahweh. My friends, uh, if you were a Jewish Christian not well versed in theology, this, is struggle, this will cause a struggle for you. And maybe for some Christians it will, who don't have a big enough picture of what is said of Christ, that Christ is fully God. He says, You laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Now, again, if we've been carefully walking through this text, we're not surprised by this. We just turn back to the beginning of this letter. Through whom also He, meaning God, made the worlds, the universe. All things made by Him and for Him. That's what Paul says elsewhere. So again, this declares Christ is the one through whom all things were made. So again, what do we see here? Omnipotence. 
pre-existence. Christ pre-exists the creation. He is the creator. Glorious things said of our Christ. Here is this, this astounding Christology being laid out for us. But notice what else is said. They will perish, meaning the created order will perish, but you will remain. You will remain. Again, eternality being set against temporality. Right? All of creation is in time. It came into existence. It is passing away. But you, O Lord, you, O Kurios, you, O Jehovah, you will remain forever. So here, Christ is not just simply uh, contrasted against the creation. He's cre- uh, contrasted against angels. That's the point of the author is, that he's making here. Angels are part of creation. They were created. So again, Christ is greater than them because He is eternal and they are not. We looked at that last Sunday. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up and they will be changed. Now, what one of us doesn't understand this principle? What doesn't age? Everything we have ages. How long will your car run? How long will your oven work? How long will your refrigerator that you just bought last? It's not eternal. (laughs) I guarantee you that. And it seems like they last shorter and shorter periods of time as time goes on. What about us? We're aging, aren't we? We're aging. None of us feel quite as spry as we once did. It's because we know this principle. We are not eternal. Right? We are created. We age. Now that doesn't speak uh, to the glories of what is revealed in the text to us of our glorification eventually. And praise God for that. But in these mortal bodies, they are breaking down, decaying, and dying. We feel it. We feel it. I remember one time years ago, Brother Ed was sitting on the back pew and I said something about, oh, we get used to these bodies failing and breaking down and he corrected me on the way out he said we never get used to it (laughs) he said we never get used to it and he's right we don't but the truth is that is the way the thing works the whole world we see it breaking down entropy is how the scientists state that but notice what is contrasted against that christ who is the same yesterday today and forever he doesn't change He is immutable. That's the theological term. Immutable. He is without change. He doesn't change. Yes, your cloak will wear out. Your blanket will wear out. Your house will wear out. But Christ will remain unchanged forever and ever. The the psalmist is asking you to even think beyond cloaks. Those are stand-ins for creation. The earth itself is passing away, he's saying but not our King. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the same without change, and your years will not fail. Charles Hodge said this about this passage. I wanted to quote it to you. He says, Kyrios in the Septuagint is the word which stands for Jehovah in Hebrew. Here it is applied to Christ. Christ, Jehovah, In the 10th, 11th, and 12th verses, we have the attributes of omnipotence, creative power, for He has laid the foundations of the earth. 
of immutability. You are the same, and your years shall not fail. And eternity, your years shall not fail. Ascribe to whom? Christ. The Psalms, wherever these passages are quoted, are concerning Jehovah. In the New Testament, Paul ascribes this language to our Savior. What is said in them of Jehovah, he says here of Christ. He says here of Christ. Now, as I close, I want to ask you, why is this important? Well, it tells us about our Savior. It tells us about Christ. It's important. But why is it important in this letter? Why is it important for the author of Hebrews to explain clearly that the Psalms were speaking of Jehovah being Christ? Why is this important? Well, I would ask you, where does this name come from? Where is this name found in the Old Testament? Well, through all these passages that speak of the covenantal God, right? The God of the covenant made with His people. This is Yahweh or Jehovah. This is God. Where is it first found? Exodus 3. Moses is encountering this burning bush and God says, I want you to go back and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go and lead my people out of their captivity. I've heard their cries. And Moses is not quick to want to do this, is he? He's trying to think of all kinds of excuses not to do it. But one of the things that he says is, well, God, when I go to your people, they're going to ask me who sent me. Who should I tell them? And God says, tell them I am that I am or I am who I am. It's a difficult passage to translate. Uh, Everett Fox, a Hebrew scholar, says it's I am that I am because it's saying that God alone is the only one that exists because he exists. I am that I am. I exist because I exist. But what does he say? Tell them Yahweh or Jehovah sent you. This is the covenantal name of God. Now, why would that matter in this letter? We'll draw back. Remember, we're going through Romans for such a long time. I said, we've got to be careful. There's two dangers that we have. One is missing the trees for the forest, and the other is missing the forest for the trees. One of the problems when you walk through these texts so slowly is you can lose the forest. See a bunch of trees and miss the forest that ties them all together. What's this letter about? A group of Hebrew Christians encountering persecution who are saying, you know what, it might be safer just to go back to Judaism. After all, it's Jehovah. It's the same God. You're saying he sent his son into the world. Is he really going to be mad if I worship him according to the old covenant? He gave us the old covenant. It was glorious. Moses mediated this covenant on behalf of the people of God. I am a Hebrew. Why can't I just simply go back there, park there, avoid persecution? And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, where would you park? That old covenant was under the covenantal name of Yahweh, Jehovah. And yet what this psalm is telling you is, that is Christ. How can you go back to a covenant that is fulfilled in Him now? How can you go back to the partial when the fullness is here? How can you go back to shadow when the reality is here? What will you turn back to? All of that points you this way. You can't go back. You have the fullness. 
in Christ Jesus. Recognize who he is. He's not another prophet. He's not just another king. He's the fulfillment of all the pictures of kingship in the Old Testament. He is the perfect and fulfillment of the kingship pictured in the Old Testament. He is the perfect king, the perfect prophet, not just another prophet. He is the perfect priest. What will you do? Return to the temple and go through the motions again? My friends, Christ paid it once and for all. The perfect sacrifice. Again, the fulfillment of all those pictures of the sacrifice in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all these things. And what is more, He Himself is God. He Himself is God. What would you turn back to? I've said this many times, but it's worth saying one more time. Always worth being reminded. 2 Corinthians, what does Paul argue? The Old Testament was glorious. Yes, it was glorious. But when you compare it to the fullness of what we have in Christ, it's as if it had no glory at all. That's his wording. It's as if it had no glory at all. It was glorious. But compared to the glory of Christ and the new covenant made in his blood, the purchase that we have, freed of being slaves to sin and and freed to be bondservants unto him, What is the Old Covenant now? How could you return back to it? Always keep in mind as you think about this letter, this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to drive into our minds. How can you honor God going back to the partial when you have the fullness now in Christ Jesus? When those psalmists were talking about their faith and their trust and their deliverance in Him, they were speaking of Christ. That's what the psalmist was saying, and that's what the author of Hebrews is telling them. It is Christ that was sent into the world to deliver us from our sins. You cannot turn away from Him. There's no other safe harbor. Amen.